0: Good morning, church. Thanks. We, uh, we start this morning in uh, our study through Acts. We start uh, Paul's second missionary journey. That's what our brother Jay has just read to us. It begins at the end of chapter 15, and it's going to continue over the next three chapters. And, uh, and Luke is, is still our storyteller, Luke is still the writer here. And, uh, and he's guiding us through Paul's ministry and he's going to be selective though in what he tells us in the next uh, few chapters. There's no way he could record every church that's planted, every uh, hurdle that they faced, every individual that they came into contact with and, uh, and that miraculously repented and followed Jesus. And so what you're going to notice is that he gives us the high points, the major uh, steps along their journey. And in the text before us this morning, we have the the account of the gospel reaching uh, European soil, what would now be in modern modern day Europe. And and so let's dive in. Let's see what we can learn as we see Jesus' power uh, displayed and and yet again taking the gospel to places where it's never been proclaimed. Um, It's incredible to see that in, in just a few short years how the gospel has went, as Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. And, uh, and we're certainly recipients and, and beneficiaries of that today. And so this morning, there's a, there's a theme that I'm seeing all over this text. And it's this. It's, it's super simple. But I think we overlook it often in our own lives. It's that uh, we see the careful and clear guidance of the Holy Spirit in the work that he calls us to, in the life that he calls us to as followers of Jesus. And we see that guidance here with Paul and these mission teams and the, these trips that he's taking to take the gospel to new places And so I've broken it down for us in that way Uh, three uh, short points or ideas Jesus' guidance to a certain place, Jesus' guidance to certain people, and Jesus' guidance to establish his church. That's what we see in the text before us this morning. We'll cover the end of 15 and then all of chapter 16. So the first point we see there Jesus' guidance to a certain place. Now, uh, we love traveling, we love taking trips as a family took one this weekend with a bunch of uh, a bunch of men and had a great time but trips require planning even spontaneous trips require some amount of of planning who's going on the trip right we're not, we shouldn't take that for granted, even if it's a family trip, uh, who's going, because if you assume and who's going and who's with you, then uh, it's very possible that someone gets left at home, and I promise I'm not still bitter about it, Mom and Dad, if you're listening to this recording. Uh, I'm not still bitter that you left me uh, at the house that time, but that can happen, even within our own families. You assume everybody's in the minivan, and you leave, and, and everyone's not there, uh, and uh, you, you, sh- you, should, you should plan that. You should plan where you're going. What, what's your destination? Uh, how are you going to get there? Now, all of these logistical details, though they're not the, of first importance. First importance is that we're obedient to take the gospel, right? That's what Paul's doing. That's what this missionary team is doing. But these details are not unimportant. They're things you should consider. And all of these things, as we re- read through this text and study this text, Uh, are the sorts of things that Paul's dealing with in the second missionary journey but more importantly they're the things that the Holy Spirit's laying out before him. We see the providence of God all over this text and so let's pick up uh, you've just heard our brother Jay read for us uh, the end of chapter 15 where uh, the, the team forms together. Let me read it for us and we'll study this first section as God directs them to a certain place a certain group of people to a certain place. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. We've seen John Mark already in our text. But Paul thought "Mm, best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone out with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. And so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and they sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas. And departed, having been uh, uh, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Uh, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the journey starts in Antioch. I mentioned that to you a few weeks back, that this Antioch would be the home base. It would be the mission control center for these missionary journeys. That's what we see again in the text this morning. In Paul's second missionary journey, they're, they're sent out by this Antioch church. And Paul and Barnabas were ministering there for a little while after the council met. If you remember last week, they went to Jerusalem for a council to consider uh, this requirement of circumcision. Should Gentiles be required to go through circumcision when they become Christians, Christ followers? And, uh, and, and, and after they made that decision, they traveled back to Antioch, shared the news there with those believers. And in some time passes. They're there strengthening the churches, teaching the churches. And, and Paul is led by the Lord to revisit those churches that he uh, was led to start on the first missionary journey. That sounds like a pretty good plan, right? Let's, let's make a, a reunion tour, if you will, and, uh, and go visit some of these churches. Not so fast. Uh, a sharp disagreement, the text says, arose between Paul and Barnabas when they start planning the trip who they're going to take with them, who would, who would uh, attend this, this, this journey with them. And, Paul, and Barnabas wants to take his cousin, remember? They're cousins, John Mark. We've met him already in our text. And Paul says, over my dead body. Do you remember how that little mama's boy deserted us on the first trip? We got halfway into the trip and the dude left. He wanted to go back home, uh, maybe to see uh, mama, to get some home cooking, to sleep in his own bed. We're not told why, but he left us. And they can't come to an agreement over this. Barnabas uh, and, and Paul over whether John Mark should go. And so, uh, so they split ways. And Barnabas and John Mark go to uh, Cyprus. Paul selects Silas to go with him. The church prays over them. And they set out for, for Syria and Cilicia. And to go and strengthen the churches there. So they, they've parted ways. And so what do we make of this church? Like, How do we look at a text like this? Make application for our lives today and in the, in the world we live in. I think there's one sense in which we can feel conflicted about this decision. Uh, Kent Hughes in his commentary says our judgment goes with Paul as, as far as it concerns John Mark, but our hearts go with Barnabas. Like in, in in our minds, you you sort of want to say, "Well, fool me once, John Mark, and shame on you," but but fool me twice, John Mark, and that's shame on me. Like you've you've our best judgment says that last time you didn't even make it through the trip, so you probably shouldn't go. And then yet our hearts say Jesus is is the Lord of second chances. Uh, he gives all of us a second chance. He gives all of us grace. We all screw up. We all mess up. Forgiveness is there. And so maybe, maybe like Barnabas, we, we need to let John Mark go on this thing. And here's the reality church family. And here's why I think we have texts like this in Scripture. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they're all flawed men. They're not perfect. They're not set up for us in Scripture as these perfect men, these saints that are without error. And neither are we. I mean, as as flawed people, um, even these mighty missionaries still face moments of frustration, of sin, of disagreement. And this is a healthy reminder for us, church, that as believers, as Christians, as long as we live in this fallen world, wrapped in this human flesh, we're going to face opposition and disappointment and contention. And a lot of times it's because of other people, but a lot of times it's because of me. It's because of you. It's because our sin got in the way. We're not perfect. And neither were these men in Acts. And I'm thankful that the Word of God doesn't just pass over these details, like gloss over them and you know, leave them out of Scripture because it just makes the story flow better or because it makes the people in Acts look better. No, the, the Bible is, is careful to give us these details because even they face disagreement. And yet in the midst of their disagreement, God's guiding them. His Holy Spirit's leading them exactly where He wants them. In his sovereign plan, his purposes are going to be achieved and fulfilled. And that's what we see happening even in their sinful uh, spat or disagreement that they get into. Well, God used this, 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 this conflict to achieve his purposes as a result uh, of this disagreement. They, they go two separate ways. And so now there's two missionary journeys instead of one. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that all church splits and Christian feuds are, are justified. I think we call them what they are Uh, this text doesn't give us license to complain and murmur and quarrel with one another with brothers and sisters in Christ that's that's sinful behavior but it does show us that God can work through all of those sorts of things to to advance the gospel to achieve gospel ends well that's how the missionary team uh, uh, originally shapes and, and takes form but as we continue reading we see another member is added to Paul's team let's let's continue verse one of chapter 16 and Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany them and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek and they went on their way through the cities And delivered to uh, them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in numbers daily. Well, team Paul and Silas travel from east to west. They end up in Lystra and in Derbe. And there they meet a man, a young man named Timothy. And he stands out to Paul. It catches Paul's attention. Uh, the boy's daddy was Greek. His mama was, was Jewish. His grandmother, we learn in 2 Timothy, was also Jewish. They had taught him the, the Old Testament scriptures. And by this time, even in his young life, he's mature. That's how Paul recognizes him to be a mature young man. Rooted and in, 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 in had a, have a solid foundation in his faith and in his belief. And as a result, verse 3, Paul suggests, Hey, this, this guy Timothy should join us on this, on this journey. But look at what happens at the last part of verse 3. It says Paul went and circumcised young Timothy. Now, you should stop when you read that and go, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> didn't we just settle this in the last chapter? Didn't the council meet in Jerusalem to decide that this was unnecessary? That you didn't have to circumcise these Gentile converts? And now the very next thing we see in the word of God is Paul is doing that exact thing that they said he didn't have to do. What's going on here? Like, what What gives? Paul is doing this here with young Timothy for a specific reason in a specific context. And I think this is important for us, church, as we make application walking through the book of Acts. We need to see this. Paul is using caution here, and he's being sensitive to a Jewish audience because Timothy had both Jewish and Greek parents, family. But in Galatians chapter 2, you'll get to Galatians and see that Paul refuses circumcision for Titus, another young man that he encounters and has a ministry to Why? Because Titus is purely Greek, Greek parents on both sides, and fidelity to the gospel is at stake in the the account of of Titus, and so we're not going to confuse that with circumcision. Here's what's going on. Something's happening here with Timothy where in in rabbinic law, in Old Testament Jewish law, someone who had both a Greek father and and a Jewish mother were considered to be Jewish, and Paul knew that Timothy would be constantly offending the Jewish people that they were ministering to if he were not circumcised. And so as a matter of mission strategy, not salvation, let's make that clear, as a matter of mission strategy and as a sign of respect to his Jewish heritage uh, and to maintain these Jew-Gentile relationships, the unity that's already been formed between Jew and Gentile, Timothy submits himself to a painful surgery. I think we could all acknowledge that. He does it. He goes through with it for the sake of his, his, his ministry and his, and his witness to both Jew and Greek. You see the difference there. It's not a stipulation for salvation. It's an, it's an opportunity. It's a strategic decision that Timothy uh, makes and Paul encourages him to make so that he can bridge the cultural differences between Jew and Greek as they travel and do ministry. And so what do we learn here, church? How do we apply something like this to our lives? I don't think we, we struggle with this exact same thing because it's not our context I think Paul gives us a little more insight here in First Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul gives an explanation more on what he's doing here with Timothy. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Here's what Paul says. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, meaning Jews, I became as one of those outside the law. Though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. Here's what Paul says, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Here's what Paul says. Get over yourself. Here's what Paul says. His desire was to adapt to these different audiences. Why? Because the gospel is of primary importance. That's what was of most importance to Paul. And so if if doing this in the life of Timothy would help give them a platform and opportunity for the gospel, let's do it, Timothy. Let's do it. We should be willing to imitate Paul in this as we apply this text to our lives. As long as adapting cultures around us doesn't lead us to sinful action... We should be willing to hold our cultures and customs with open hands. Say, Lord, if you want me to give on something, if you want me to flex on something, I'll do it for the sake of the gospel. This, this is, I think, a little bit more obvious to us in, in cross-cultural context when we're on mission trips and things like that. So just as an example this morning, i got a few for you. You'll see them on the screens. And uh, In India, uh, I've sat on the floor. Uh, is anyone in the sound room? I don't see you. Yeah, so in India, sat on the floor as, uh, as, as folks came by in droves and placed real flowers around our necks. I don't even really understand to this day what they were doing, but it was an opportunity to share the gospel, so we let them do it to us. Uh, in Ahmedabad, uh, there's another picture there, I wore a traditional dress. So there's your pastor in a dress uh, for the opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, in Malaysia, I've eaten chicken and monkey feet. Um, I think it's the picture before that or after that um, for the opportunity to share the gospel, scarf down some feet, man, and, uh, and we had that opportunity. In, in Uganda, I've eaten chewy goat, and Mike Bradford, shout out, has uh, eaten a, a bunch of dried fish, that's what that next picture is, for an opportunity to share the gospel so that we don't offend our brothers and sisters there when they offer us food that is very unlike anything that we would eat here in the States. And worst of all, here in North Carolina, actually, in our home, I've I've went as far as eating uh, vegetables <laughs> for the sake of the gospel. Humbled myself and scarfed down vegetables for an opportunity to share the gospel. My wife will vouch. I was almost green, but I did it. And, and sometimes we have to do that. The point is this, church family, in our culture... There are things that we might think are normal. There are there preferences we have, tastes that we have for certain things, whether it's clothing or foods that we may eat. And here's the thing. Not one of those things is as important as one person getting the opportunity to hear the gospel. That's what Paul's teaching us here with young Timothy. If we can do any of these things to alleviate these, these cultural barriers, let's do them. Let's do them. And so if, if, you, if you have to flex on something, be willing to flex. If you think something's weird, be willing to go there. Why? Because the gospel is of first importance. That's what we see here. And here's the thing, newsflash for us. When we get to heaven and we're gathered around the throne where there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping our king, these cultural things, these backgrounds, these food preferences, these clothing preferences, not one of those things is going to matter one little bit. None of it. Because we're going to be in the presence of our king. The gospel's worth us flexing when it comes to some of our cultural preferences. And we can make those vegetables disappear. I'm just kind of getting weirded out even as I preach and see them up there. So. <laughs> well, that's how our team is forming. Let's continue reading the text. Verse 6, it says, And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they come up to uh, Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Lord, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's what we see as we continue seeing God's guidance in their lives. Uh, here's God's providence. After encountering these new churches and strengthening them, encouraging these new churches that they'd founded, Paul decides to go to Asia, right? That's a good thing to do. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to Asia. He forbids them to go. And we don't know how he's forbidden. Maybe he had a, a different dream that said, hey, don't go to Asia. Or maybe the Lord just didn't give him a piece about it in his heart. Or, or maybe physically they couldn't get there because of transportation issues. Maybe somebody gets sick and they can't travel for a while. And then the door closes for them to go to... We're not told how... But what we do know is that the Lord blocked their way. There's a lesson here for us, church. God can prevent us from doing certain things that we might have, have the best of intentions in doing. Thinking, man, surely God would want me to do that. And he closes that door. And in that moment, we shouldn't despair. Because it's not that, 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 we, that we miss God. In fact, him closing that door is showing us that we're actually in tune with him. We're, we're following him and this just wasn't his plan. Well, Paul keeps learning this lesson. It's sort of on repeat for him because not only did God block the door from, from going to Asia, he also blocked him from going to Bithynia in verse 7. It's like closed door after closed door. But then in verse 9 and 10, Paul receives this incredibly clear vision for where God wants him. And this man from Macedonia appears in his dream and his vision and says, Hey, come up here and help us. And it's God communicating to Paul, Hey, Paul, this is where I want you. This is why those other two doors close, because this is where I'm opening a door. But something else happens in verse 10, and maybe you picked up on this. This is a new feature in the book of Acts. We haven't really seen this in the book of Acts to this point. Look at verse 10 again with me. It says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Did you catch that? It's the first occurrence of this we statement that we have in Acts. It's a clue for us that the writer, Luke, he's been writing the book of Acts, is now in. he's a part of this mission team and so he's been telling us everything that's been going on from eyewitness accounts interviewing these people that it happened with and saying hey here's what happened in in jerusalem and in samaria and all these different places now he's saying we 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 went and god used us to preach he's talking in the first person because he's now a part of the mission team i want to make a few observations here before we move on first there's a lot of things about this part of paul's story that we don't know we don't know about the geography, how they, how they traveled to these places. We don't know about, about the doors that closed and how God blocked them from going to these other two places. We don't know the nature of this vision that he had, who this Macedonian man was, and, and how that all came about. How he even knew he was a Macedonian man. Do you, you think about that? Like, Hey, where are you from? <laughs> Just Macedonian man shows up in his dream and he knows he's from Macedonia and that's where he's got to go. We don't know how or why Luke joins the team at this point. He's now on the team. But... What we do know is of much greater importance and much greater significance. And we get this simply from reading the text. As you walk through this passage, it's clear that God is guiding these missionaries. He's laying out their steps before them. He's giving them a lamp unto their feet. He's lighting their path saying, this is your next step. Here's who you're going to go with. Here's where you're going to go. Here's what you're going to do when you get there. God is orchestrating all of this and he does the same for us today. He's not hiding from you. It's not his plan to, to be secretive about his will for your life. He wants to show you. He wants to guide you. That's what he's given us the Holy Spirit for. Second thing to note here, just as we as we read through the text, note the Trinitarian nature of this Macedonian trip. There are entire denominations of Christians that'll say, hey, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so we don't need to believe in a Trinity. One God. We don't believe in a Trinity. While that's true, that the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. You have the Trinity in the Bible, and one place is right here. I mean, look, look at your Bibles with me if you have them open. Verse 6, the Holy Spirit prevented us from going to Asia. Verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going to Bithynia. Verse 10, God implied the Father called them to go to Macedonia. The takeaway is this. Uh, the Trinity is in the scriptures and the Trinity is at work in the providence of God leading them and guiding them in every step of their journey I want to give us some quick application and when I say quick I'm going to give them to you real quick five quick statements when we think about our lives and the Lord leading us guiding us, directing our steps orchestrating our paths I want to give you five quick things to consider I know we make decisions all the time in our culture it seems like we make big decisions almost every week Every month, here are five things to consider as you make decisions as the Lord guides you in your Christian journey. Number one is this, and it's of first importance. When it comes to following God's guidance, we start always by obeying what he's already clearly given us in his word. That's where we start. 90% of God's will for your life is in, is in, the, or in the pages of, of that book that's in your lap. <laughs> God's given you His Word. And for us to to snob God's Word and to thumb our nose at God's Word is to say, that book that you wrote for me to know you and to follow you, it's just outdated. It's not good enough anymore. It's not applicable. It's not relevant to today's world. That's foolish. That's how He's communicated with us. So we start by obeying the clear instructions in His Word. Second, we remain sensitive to the Spirit's prompting in the details that are not in the Bible Right? So there, there are the, the where's, the winds, the, the how's, the what's that are specific to our lives um, and, and the details of our lives that, that obviously we're not going to read in Romans chapter 4. They're just not there, the, the specific ones. But that's what he's given us the Holy Spirit for. So that as we're obedient to his word, to the scriptures, those things, as it did for Paul and his team here, they're laid out right in front of us. And we watch the Holy Spirit as he draws our hearts to obedience in those details, in the the fine points of what he's doing. Third thing is this, and this is important, church. We seek godly counsel when we aren't certain what to do, when maybe we don't see the fine print, the details, the when, the where, the what, the who. We go to godly counsel. As Michael said this morning as he introduced our time of worship, we have one another for this purpose. The Christian life was not meant to be lived on an island in isolation. When was the last time you made a decision, a huge decision for your family in concert with another brother or sister in Christ or with your small group or with your D group? Saying, brothers or sisters, is this right? Am I leading leading my family right? Am I making these decisions in the right way? God's given us one another for that purpose. Fourth thing, we think carefully and often for a while before making these big decisions. We don't make them in haste, out of emotion, out of a a knee-jerk reaction, what feels right in a given moment. We pray, we consider, we carefully make these decisions with other believers, not in haste. And then five, we don't get discouraged along the way. We know from scriptures, God's time is not our time. His ways are not our ways. They're above ours. And so when, when our plans don't line up with the timeline that God has for us, we don't, we don't despair. We don't throw up our hands and go, well, I guess God's not doing anything. We trust that. I mean, because that would have been easy for Paul to do, right? You see that in the text. Like, well, God's not leading me to Asia. God's not leading me to Bithynia. I guess God's through with me. I don't know what he's going to do with me. And the whole time, God's leading them to Macedonia. And so in your lives, when the things that you think should be lining up by this point, and your timeline is like, well, I guess it's, it's maxed out. God's not done nothing yet. I guess he's not going to do anything. Just wait on the Lord. Don't despair. Sometimes those closed doors are exactly what God needs for you to see before he opens the right one. David Livingstone said this, uh, one, of the, one of the huge uh, missionaries in Christian history. He said this, without Christ, not one step. With him, anywhere. Let's live with that kind of mentality, church. Without Christ, without his guidance, without a clear vision of what he's doing, I ain't taking one step. But with him, I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere he wants me to be. All of that's point number one. Let's go to point two. We see Jesus' guidance to certain people. Look at verse, uh, uh, in, in chapter 16, we see this transition. In verses 11 and 12, it sort of sets the scene for us. So look at 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothrace uh, and, and, and the following day to Neapolis, And from there uh, to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. So the missionary team's in Philippi, and it gives us this hint in the text. Philippi, for for our information, is is sort of like little Rome. It's like a little colony of Rome that wanted to be like big Rome, and in every way, in the way that they had their city set up, and in their leadership, in their culture, in their tastes and preferences for things, they wanted to be like Rome. And it fell under the Roman Empire, and it had an incredible amount of Roman influence there. And the missionaries go, and and go to this, this, this city, this place called Philippi, and they stay for some time there. There are numerous people that they meet along the way. And Luke's intentional to give us a glimpse of three. Of all the people that they met in Philippi, we get three uh, snapshots. Three different individuals. And I think it's intentional. I think Luke gives us these three because it shows us that God is about what he's about. The business that God is in is saving different people from different backgrounds and using different ways or methods to do it. We see that example in the text. So let's, let's look at them as we walk. Uh, through this text there's also a, a chart if you want to throw that up because I think this helps as we're seeing these three and walking through these texts seeing them in kind of a I know it's kind of small but in chart form you kind of see exactly how they're they're different they're different in, in almost every kind of way and in their ethnicity in their economic status in, in their spiritual backgrounds and in their way the event that God used to bring them to salvation and so we'll, we'll leave that up as I walk through these in the text the first one they meet uh, is, a, is a wealthy woman look at verse 13. It says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were supposed to, uh, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had uh, come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So evidently there's no synagogue in this area because we know that's how Paul usually starts. He goes straight to the synagogue and begins to preach. And so they do the the next closest thing. They go and find a place of prayer. And as they sit down there, there's some women there. They begin to teach the gospel, uh, sharing with these these ladies who Jesus is. And one of the women there is is a lady named Lydia, and she's from the city of Thyatira. She's a seller of purple. Now, that's a clue for us that immediately we should recognize. This woman is a wealthy woman. She has goods. She has income. And the the purple goods that it specifically mentions mentions there, in this day, those were expensive goods. This was the the clothing uh, choice of of royalty. Uh, People in places of, of stature and prominence, government leaders, kings, wore purple. And so as you can imagine, if you're making the clothes for the king... You're in a pretty lucrative business. She was pretty well off. Additionally, the other hint that we have is that she's hosting people in her home by the end of this thing. So her home is big enough to host people overnight, missionary teams in her home. So this woman's a woman of of, of stature. She's a woman of, of wealth. She had means. And yet, though she had been successful, her personal success in her life and in her business, she was still looking for more. She seemed to even be a religious woman. A God-fearing woman, a worshiper of God, but she was looking for more. She knew that there was something else that she was missing. And Luke mentions uh, in our in our text, like Cornelius, and she she's she's a God-fearing woman. She she attempted as best she could to honor God, the God of the Bible, by, by living out some of these Jewish customs, being a, a worshiper of, of the God of Israel. And so what happens here? The text the text passes really quickly over the fact that she's converted. She repents of her sins, she believes upon Christ. It's not that Paul is a great preacher, uh, though he is sharing the gospel with her. That's not why she believed. Look at verse 14. It tells us. It gives us the, the heart of the matter. This is why it, it says it so quickly, because the, the key to it is verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. She's sitting there hearing this dude talk about this guy named Jesus, and then all of a sudden, that's the best thing she's ever heard in her life. That's the thing she'd been missing. That's the thing that, that even though she found success in the world, she was wanting out of everything she had. That's what she needed. This is the first mention of someone coming to faith in Christ on European soil. Think about that. The, the seedbed for Christianity several generations later would be this place, and she's the first one that professes faith in Christ that we know of on European soil. And I just had to believe that in a room like this, and in a time like this, and in a place like this, God could be doing the very same thing for someone right here. That there's some longing you have, there's some deep need that you have, and you didn't even know you had it, but for some reason your heart is restless, and everything else in your life seems to be going pretty well, but for some reason you're unsettled. And God is at this point opening your heart to say, it's Jesus. That's the thing you've missed. That's the thing that you didn't even know you needed, but you need. And today the answer for you is to repent of your sins. To say, God, I know I'm a sinner. You're perfect, you're holy, and I'm disconnected from you because I'm not. But Christ died in my place, and I believe that. Well, after her conversion, you see this. She's baptized based upon her, her confession. She's, uh, she's brought through the, the, the act of baptism. And then here's the thing, church family. This is important. Like, when we come to faith in Christ, we're not ashamed of that. Like, I think in our culture, we're, like, we're worried about what it might look like on social media or what our friends at work may say. She didn't care. She identified with Jesus through this obedience in baptism. And then look at verse 14, or 15. She opens up her home to these missionaries after her conversion. Listen, church, when you're born again, there's a transformation that happens and it's immediate. Now, it's not, not that you're perfect, not that you're sinless once you're converted, but there's a, there's a switch that flips. There's something different about you from that moment forward. And here, the clear indicator of that is this hospitality. She immediately asked these guys, hey, you guys need a place to stay. You're missionaries in our city. Why don't you come stay with us? Listen, church, there's application for us here. Your home is an incredible tool for gospel ministry. God's given you it. Steward it for his glory. Your dinner table is an incredible tool for God's glory. Steward it for his glory. Have folks over. Have folks in your home so that you're able to sit around a table and talk about what God's done in your life. It's incredible encouragement for us to use the things that God's given us for his kingdom. That moves us to the second person we meet in the text. Uh, we, We see that God guides them to a slave girl. Verses 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now immediately and intentionally we see the contrast between Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, and this slave girl. Again, Jesus in his word is showing us as the church today that he has the power to save anyone, anywhere, at any time. And this young woman is possessed by a spirit, a spirit that allows her to make predictions about the future. And locals, the folks in Philippi, considered this this fortune telling to be empowered by the god Apollos. And so uh, they would seek out... These, these, these slave girls like this, and asked them to tell uh, their future. And, uh, and in verse 16, we see that it brought great profit. There was a great business here uh, for, for, for people to make money through these mediums. And so instead of feeling sorry for this demon-possessed girl, what we see is men came into her life, took her over as a piece of property, and began to use her to make money for themselves. Similar to the relationship between a pimp and a prostitute, they would use her for their own good, for their own benefit, and she's in double bondage. She's possessed by an evil spirit, spiritually, and she's possessed by an evil human master, physically. She's broken. She has nothing. She's being abused and used in every way, and note that she followed this mission team for several days, and what she says of them is actually true. It's entirely true. She says, hey, these men are coming to tell you about Jesus, the way of salvation, And we see this in the Gospels as well. This happens with Jesus. Often demon-possessed people will utter true things about Jesus, and yet Jesus turns around and rebukes them every time. There's something to learn here, church, that the good news of the Gospel must be uttered for Jesus' glory and not ulterior motives for men. Now, the Gospel of Jesus is the good news, and it's, it's, it's for and it's unto the glory of God. And so out of frustration, the text tells us, and I believe probably empathy too, Paul turns around and frees her of this demon. He, he, he exercises this demon. And in that moment, the power of Christ is displayed. And think about the, the, the Gadarean boy, the Gadarean demoniac. This girl, like him, was instantly in her right mind. It says within the hour, she was right. She was in, in contact with Jesus, the power of the gospel, and then in the next moment, she's, she's right and good. She had a new master, the Good Shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ, who had freed her from, from spiritual and physical bondage, gave her peace, gave her joy, gave her freedom. Now, so far, contrast these two conversions. Lydia's wealthy. This slave girl is poor. Lydia is a, a community member in, in high regard. This slave girl is exploited and abused by her community. Uh, Lydia is, is religious and moral. This slave girl is broken and tormented. Lydia it, it comes, from, uh, comes to faith. Uh, Through a quiet Bible study, the slave girl comes to faith through a dramatic exorcism. And yet, here's the common denominator, they both met Jesus. And the outcome's the same. They went away with a new Lord, with a new master, with a new king over their heart, and everything was changed. He transformed their lives. Though they had different backgrounds, different circumstances, the end was the same. And here's the truth for us today. He can do the same thing in any of our hearts. In a moment, our lives can be radically changed. The same power that brought this evil spirit out of this slave girl is the same power that it tells us in the text opened her eyes and heart, opened Lydia's eyes and heart. And it's the same power that would awaken us if we're a Christ follower today. Well, the text concludes one final uh, snapshot, one final individual that we meet and that in God's guidance comes to faith in Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them uh, to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely." Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, "'Do not harm yourself, for we're all here.' And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, this slave girl coming to freedom, coming to joy and peace in Christ is a fantastic thing. Unless you're one of the dudes that was making a living off of her. And what we see is that this conversion of this slave girl upset the economic situation in Philippi. The owners of this girl were, uh, were about to lose a whole lot of money. And so they brought these charges against Paul and Silas. And they claimed that these missionaries were maliciously disturbing the city. And the crowds joined in this attack and the city officials had them beaten with rods. And I, I think we pass over this without thinking the brutality of it. That, that, that it's hard for us to imagine the torture that these two men endured in this encounter. Beating them with rods would have left them swollen and lacerated, covered in in blood, impossible for them to lay down because of the wounds across their back. Not even allowed to lay down, though, because what we see in the text is that they were put in stocks. in, In the dungeon, in the innermost part of the dungeon, they were placed in stocks. Often these stocks that are mentioned here in verse 24 would have had various holes in them so that the prisoners' feet were locked up and they were stretched out, their stomachs and torsos taut like a rope would be, Incredibly painful over a period of time, which makes the next part even more incredible. It's midnight, and Paul and Silas in their stocks in the bottom of the jail are singing. They're worshiping Jesus. I mean, with dried blood still matted in their hair and in their beards, their stomachs and chests stretched tight with these locks. They're having a worship service. They're praising God for their circumstances and where God has them. And these men in the prison with them are hearing this singing. They're hearing all of this and they're amazed at their faith. Now, they're likely singing psalms and and quoting scripture to one another, pouring out their hearts in prayer. And as they do so, these prisoners are listening to every word of it. And then all of a sudden, the ground begins to shake. God shows up, earthquake happens, these chains begin to break. And as these chains fall off, the jailer panics. Because what he knows is that in this, this, this the reality of these, these prisoners being freed from their bonds, and they're gone, they've all escaped prison, it means his death. That he's going to be the one that has to pay for this. And so in fear, he grabs his sword, he begins to commit suicide, and Paul and Silas, they take an opportunity in the midst. They could have fled, they, they, they could have went from here and left, in the midst of all this chaos with this earthquake, they could have left, but they stopped to save this man's life in verse 28. And unbeknownst to him, not only would his physical life be saved that night, his soul would be saved. Which is what he asked in verse 30. How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? He's probably been listening to them singing. He's probably been listening to them pray all night. Probably knew their story and why they were in prison to begin with. Probably saw firsthand this, the, the change that the gospel brought in the life of this slave girl. He knew the whole story. And so his question makes sense. How, how can I have what you have? How can my life be like your life? Does your faith make people ask that? What's different about you? What do you have that I don't have? Explain to me what's different. And Paul puts it to the jailer just like he does to Lydia and to the slave girl. It's Jesus. He points him to Christ. He's the one that makes the difference. He's the one that can save you. And then in humility and in service, the jailer uh, having come to faith in Christ, he washes the wounds of these missionaries. Let that sink in for a second. That it's very possible he's washing some of the very wounds that a short time earlier he had created. <laughs> he's serving them. And then he goes on to show you that he, that he brought them in and, and served them a meal. There's a, there's a theme here we see, church family. You get saved, you feed people. That's really good for us. Baptists are doing it right with our potlucks. You meet Jesus and you're just different. Hospitality, love, warm affection for other brothers and sisters. It comes with the territory. And we see in all three of these counts that God propels his children to different people in different circumstances with different backgrounds. And and, and the outcome is the same. There's gospel transformation where the gospel proclaims. There's a couple quick things to think about. If there's someone you've been praying for for a really long time and you don't see God doing anything in their life, don't give up. Christ can save anyone at any time, anywhere. Second thing is this. What could God be teaching you through this text? What could God be doing to guide you? That's what we see, God's guidance all throughout this text. What could God be doing to guide you to be the means by which that person is brought to faith in Christ that you've been praying for for a really long time? Let's pray, church family, that the Lord would give us conviction, opportunity, and then boldness to take those opportunities. Last thing, and I know we're already over on our time, but we can't miss this. Third thing, it's our last thing. Jesus, we see his guidance to establish his church. Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the words of Saul, or Paul, uh, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. That's good news, right? Therefore, come out now and go in peace. It's good news. They've, They've said to let you go. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly Mm-mm. no let them come themselves and take us out and the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard it that they were roman citizens and so they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city and so they went out of the prison and visited lydia and when they had seen the brothers they encouraged them and departed so verse 35 don't don't miss this in the tech church family verse 35 shows us that governing officials ordered the release of paul and silas we don't know why maybe just to keep the peace so that Paul and Silas can get out of town quickly before big Rome gets involved, right? They don't want Rome stepping in. They want to be considered like Rome. They don't want Rome to have to step on their toes. Whatever the reason, we're not sure. But when this newly converted jailer goes and shares this news with Paul, Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm a Roman citizen. I demand some respect here. I demand some vindication. Minimally, I demand a conversation with these governing authorities. Now, Paul knew they had overstepped their legal authority here, and he wants wants it to be made right. He wants some vindication here. And we have to wonder when we're reading the text, why is Paul so insistent upon receiving this official escort out of town? I mean, we've never seen Paul to be the type of guy that would publicly humiliate someone, right? We've not seen him acting like that. Paul would go on in Romans... To write, he would, he would quote God in the book of Romans saying, uh, God, God would say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. So Paul knew that. He knew that the Lord would repay. He knew that vengeance was God's. And so why does it look like here that Paul is, is wanting some sort of vindication? He's wanting some sort of humiliation on these that, that captured and put him in prison. I have to believe, church family, that what Paul is, is doing here is not looking out for his own benefit. He's not looking out for his, for his own life and reputation. He's looking out for the newly founded church in Philippi. I mean, think about this. He's, he's wanting to show that he and Silas had done nothing wrong. He's wanting publicly for Philippi to know that, that, it, that Christianity is no threat to the Romans' way of life. And in fact, it only helps it. It only supports it. It's only for the good of the community. He's wanting to make sure that the church's relationship with these Roman authorities, with these government officials is in a good place. He's wanting to make sure that the church, this Lydia and this slave girl and their families, have a good reputation when he leaves the city. So what might at first look like self-serving you know, uh, vindication, it, it's actually probably the opposite. That Paul is demonstrating a love for Christ's newly founded church in this area. He's wanting these brothers and sisters to be in good repute with their community. And then in verse 39, it says the magistrates came and they, they did that. They did apologize to them. And then in one final scene in Philippi, verse 40, before heading out of town, I love this is the last scene that we get, the last glimpse that we get right here of, of Philippi at this point in Acts. Before heading out of town the the mission team stops by lydia's house can you imagine this sweet reunion here those comprising of the local church had gathered it says that he he spent time with the brothers don't just pass by that too quickly church because think about this think of the implications of verse 40 before this journey to philippi and all this these shenanigans that took place in philippi there were no brothers or sisters in philippi It was just a lost pagan city that looked a whole lot like Rome. No church, no brothers and sisters, and now Paul and Silas leave with several members of a spiritual family. What an incredible thought. In all likelihood, Lydia, this slave girl, this jailer, and his family are there. And before meeting Christ, before coming in contact with the gospel, they didn't spend time together. If they knew each other, they didn't hang out. They had nothing in common. There's no reason they would. And here we have people who have zero natural connections Nothing in common closer to one another than biological relatives. That's the power of the gospel church. That's the kind of transformation that the gospel brings. And this is the story of the foundation of the first church on European soil. Now, I mentioned earlier that Philippi was like a little colony of the kingdom of Rome. And now in the midst of that little colony of the kingdom of Rome, you have a little colony of the kingdom of heaven. And it's going to spread like wildfire. And God's going to use this little church and these precious believers to take the gospel to their neighbors and their friends. And the church is going to grow. And later, later on, here's what's really cool, church. Later on, Paul's going to write a letter back to these brothers and sisters. He's going to write to them and and encourage them. And we have that letter. It's in your Bible. It's called the book of Philippians. That's a letter to these people. Put that into perspective when you read it. Think about him writing to Lydia, the the seller of purple. Think about him writing to, to this slave girl who's had her life transformed. To the jailer who was about to kill himself. Literally was about to commit suicide before he met King Jesus. That's who he's writing to in Philippians. Let me read. We're going to end this way. Philippians chapter 1. As I read, think about him writing to these precious saints that he spent time with in Philippi. He says this. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for all uh, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. Yeah, that first day, Lydia, where I met you at the prayer garden for the first day, slave girl, where you were were speaking through the, the power of a demon from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What a joy. What a joy it is for us, church family, to see the gospel at work in our lives and in the lives of other brothers and sisters around us. Let's pray and submit to him for his guidance. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious church in Philippi, what we learn about the way that you want to guide us and lead us in this life, about the power of the gospel to bring transformation to sinners. And God, that's what I pray right now in this moment. That each and every one of us, wherever we're at, there's only two options. Either we're walking with you, we're, we're a child of God, or we're a child of Satan, the devil. We've never given our life to you. And so wherever folks are at in this room, God, I pray this morning that you would do as you did for Lydia, and open hearts to hear and believe the word. God, if that's believers, that we would hear and believe the word, and look for your guidance and trust your guidance, even when the path is, it seems confusing or hard. God, give us faith to do that. God, for unbelievers in this room this morning that have never trusted Christ, never repented of sins, God, would you open hearts to believe the gospel, the greatest news in all of the world, that Christ died in the place of sinners. And so we give you this time, Father, and we pray as we respond. You would draw hearts to yourself. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you would stand with me, here's how we'll respond. This morning, if... uh, The Lord's working in your heart, and you know you've never trusted Christ for salvation. I want an opportunity to talk to you. I'll stand right here and would love an opportunity to pray with you. Describe to you what it would mean to give your life to Christ. And here's the thing. If you're here this morning, you are a believer, and yet you know that there's, there's there's been a guidance issue in your heart. You've not been trusting. You've not been following Christ. You've not been leaning on him and his word for every step. Commit today to do that. We see in the text, that's what he wants to do for us as our king, as our God. By him placing the holy spirit in our lives so do business with the lord maybe you need to just come and get on your face before the lord and say god i need to repent because i've not been following you like that i've not been trusting you like that as husband i've not been leading my family like that as a wife i've not been submitting and following and respecting and honoring my husband like that as kids i've not treated my parents with the honor that the bible says i should i need to get that right today you do business with the lord let's pray